Genesis chapter 47. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. We're at the tail end of the book of Genesis. If you haven't been with us in the past, I encourage you to go back, listen to some of the Bible studies. We don't have time to do a full recap for where we are, so we're just going to kind of dive in. If you haven't been with us and you're a little lost at the beginning, you'll get caught up. Just bear with us. Verse 28. So Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel, it's another name for Jacob, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. This was the way that you made a vow, made a covenant with someone. He says, please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And Joseph said, I will do as you have said. Then Jacob said, swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. It's amazing to consider. But Jacob has lived in the land of Egypt An astounding 17 years, which is almost as much time as he had spent in Haran serving in the house of his father-in-law, Laban. Jacob is now 147 years old. He was 130 when he came to Egypt, 17 years, makes him 147. And he's sensing that his time on this earth is about to come to an end. Jacob knows that death is on his doorstep. And yet, there's a few loose ends, some things he wants to tie up before he breathes his last. With this in mind, Jacob. He calls to himself his son Joseph. And he makes Joseph swear not to bury him in Egypt. This was very important to Jacob. He doesn't want to be buried in the land of Egypt. He wants his body taken back to Canaan. So that he might, as he says, lie with his fathers. It's fascinating. Jacob here has spent 17 years in Egypt. And yet Egypt has never become his home. Jacob's heart has always remained in the land of promise. Which is why he requests to be buried there. Genesis 48 verse 1, now it came to pass. After these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. So Joseph took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now following this this first exchange, it doesn't take very long for Jacob's health to deteriorate. We don't know how long, whether it was a few days, a week, even a few months. We know he doesn't get to another year because he dies at 147. But his health deteriorates and word finally gets to Joseph that his father's sick. Time's short. Joseph grabs his sons. He comes quickly with Manasseh and Ephraim, making sure that he gets to his dad. Now for some context, Joseph at this point Joseph's 56 years old, and these two boys, his sons, are in their early 20s. Now, before we continue, it should be pointed out that in recounting the lives of the great men and women of Scripture, great men and women of faith and the Old Testament, in a famous chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews recounts story after story after story of men and women who walk by faith in the Old Testament. But what's interesting is that the one and only comment that the author of Hebrews makes concerning the life of Jacob is in this very chapter. In Hebrews 11, verse 21, we're told that by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped leaning on top of his staff. To me, I find it fascinating that the one moment of Jacob's life memorialized by the Holy Spirit for all time, it wasn't the dream that Jacob had in Bethel, that glorious vision 
the angels ascending and descending. No, that, that event is not memorialized for all time. Nor was it that moment that Jacob wrestled with Jesus, the angel of the Lord, there at the brook of Jabbok, where his hip is touched and he's broken and he surrenders, accepts the grace of God. No, that event isn't mem- The one event of Jacob's life placed up on this pedestal the crescendo of this man's faith, the greatest moment of Jacob's life is none of those things, but is instead this moment when he blesses Joseph's two sons. It's his greatest moment. And we're going to unpack at the end of the study why I think it's his greatest moment. Well, verse 2, Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you in Israel strengthened himself, and sat up on his bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. This was Bethel. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. I will make you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants as an everlasting possession. Jacob begins by recounting to Joseph his very first encounter with God, the God of Abraham and Isaac, all the way back in Luz, Bethel. Not only does he recount the experience, but he focuses in on the promises that God had given him in that moment. This old man, with the picture being painted by the author of Hebrews, leaning on his staff. He's nearly blind from old age. He looks back. Beyond the glories of Egypt, to the land of Canaan. It's evident that Jacob, if you look through his life, he failed to live up to his calling on more occasions than not. And yet, at the end, as he's thinking about his journey and where the Lord has brought him, Jacob takes solace in the knowledge that while he may have been a screw-up, the promises of God remain sure. He says, God Almighty appeared to him and blessed him. (laughs) Blessed him even when Jacob fundamentally didn't deserve it. Furthermore, God had promised to make Jacob's life fruitful and to eventually multiply his descendants, additionally promising to give that land, the land of Canaan, to his descendants as an everlasting possession. At this point, 147 years old, Jacob has seen his descendants multiply. He's seen his kids have kids, and those kids have kids. He's seen grandkids and great-grandkids. He's seen the, the fulfillment of those promises that God had given him back when he was a young man. And this is his point to his son Joseph. If God's former promises have proven to be good, Well, the future ones are a sure thing. Though in Egypt, Jacob knows that he's going to return his family to the land. And I want you to know this, friend. If you're facing a storm today, a trial, a tribulation, something that is rocking your world, causing you to doubt, placing things in question, your faith is shaky. For a moment, Can you take your eyes off of the wind and the rain and the clouds and the thunder and the lightning around you presently and think back for a minute at the storms of the past, times when you've been in the same situation, when your future looked as uncertain, when you faced those same questions. And if God was sufficient and able to get you through the storms of the past. Why do you doubt his ability to get you through the storm you're facing? This is what Jacob is saying. God has been so good. He's given me promises. Some of these promises have been fulfilled. Some of them haven't. But I rest in the knowledge and the understanding that if he was good with these things, he will be good with those. And I hope you know that as well. 
verse 5, Jacob says, Now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, these sons are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they, speaking of Ephraim and Manasseh, shall be mine. Your offspring, who you beget after them, they can be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padam, Padam Haran, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way. There was just a little dif- distance to go to Ephraim, but I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob here, aside from the fact that he's thinking back about Joseph's mom, his love, Rachel, and how she had passed, Jacob does something here that is not only just a first in Scripture, but will have profound implications moving forward through the rest of the Bible. This phrase that Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are mine, as Reuben and Simeon, is Jacob supplanting the natural order of the birthright. This is a radical moment. Ephraim and Manasseh, through this declaration, the legally Joseph's sons are now going to be Jacob's legal heirs. (laughs) The implications of this, aside from the obvious, they go deep. In our examination of Joseph, do you recall, being given the coat of many colors by his father, we noted in that study how this coat of many colors, the fact that Joseph was the favorite of his father, was an indication that Jacob had designated Joseph to be the heir, to be the firstborn. If you recall Reuben, the technical firstborn, had committed a grave sin. We'll look at it in a few minutes. And that the birthright went over the sons given to Jacob by Leah and go to the sons given to him by Rachel, Joseph being the firstborn, is given this coat of many colors, this distinction. Joseph had the birthright. But in this scene, not only are Ephraim and Manasseh are being given part of Jacob's blessings and inheritance, He's actually making these two the first and second born of all of his sons. As Reuben and Simeon are, these two will be. Well, verse 8, Israel saw Joseph's sons, and he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. Now this question that Jacob asks Joseph, who are these, in reference to Ephraim and Manasseh, probably an indication that when Joseph came, he didn't see that Ephraim and Manasseh were there. Remember, he was told that Joseph was coming. He can't see, he's blind. And so when he's asking who are these, he's unaware that everything he's just said, Ephraim and Manasseh have been there. They've been listening. He just didn't know they were present. They've gotten closer. He's like, who are these? And Joseph's like, these are your sons. And he just embraces them and he kisses them. He's like, I never thought I'd see you, yet alone your boys, this old man. Now he knows who they are. So he wants to formally bless them. So verse 12, Joseph brought them from beside his knees. So they're in front of him. And he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Now, admittedly, that's a very weird scene. And your brain hurts trying to picture exactly what's going on. Let me paint it for you. Joseph is presenting his two boys. Manasseh is the oldest, 
Ephraim's the youngest. He's going to present them in such a way where Jacob would naturally reach for Manasseh, the firstborn, with his right hand, and where Jacob would naturally reach for Ephraim with his left hand. He's going to put his hands on their head, and he's going to bless them, pronounce a blessing. And note, the right hand, like that's where the blessing typically came from. Hence, hence the phrases, the son of my right hand, or the son of my strength. He's saying you're going to be the, the, the number one, and left is number two. And yet, what the passage says, so Joseph presents them, where it'd be natural, Ephraim right, I mean, I mean Manasseh right, Ephraim left, but as Jacob goes to pronounce the blessings, this is what he does. He crosses his arms, blessing Ephraim now with his right hand and Manasseh with his left. Now, what is Jacob doing here? He's giving the blessing of the firstborn to Joseph's younger son, Ephraim, not the older. Now, why he does this, we're not quite sure. And yet this old man filled with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, we're told guiding his hands knowingly, is doing this. You can't help but think that in the hierarchy of his family, Jacob had received the blessing, right? But had he been the firstborn? No. It had been his brother Esau who was the firstborn, and yet the blessing went to the younger. And maybe in this moment he's thinking, as he's reaching out his hands, nope, I'm not going to make this mistake. And he crosses them over. Well, verse, first, verse 15, he blessed Joseph. And Jacob said, God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be upon them. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. What an incredible blessing. And doing this, Jacob, he acknowledges two amazing traits, two things that God has done for him based upon who God simply is. First notice, he says, God has fed me all my life long. And the Hebrew, this word fed, it can be translated as shepherded. In a sense, Jacob is saying, God has shepherded me all my life long. And then he also says, the angel has redeemed me. Now, this is a clear reference to his showdown with the angel of the Lord in Jabbok, where Jesus, this Christophany, came and wrestled with him. But you should note that we also find here something interesting. It's a first. This is the first time in the Bible that we're given this word redeem. In its most simplistic form, redeem. To redeem. It means to buy back or to restore on another's behalf. It, it, redemption is fundamentally an act that one person does for another. Once you get to the law, this word redeem, it spoke of several different transactions. One where an individual was free from slavery. One where land was restored back to the original family, the rightful owner. Redemption even spoke of, of a younger brother marrying his deceased older brother's widow for the purposes of providing an heir. This person, this act, later on, would be known as the kinsman redeemer in saying that God had redeemed him. In addition to shepherding him, Jacob is acknowledging something I find fascinating. The angel of the Lord, Jesus, had not only wrestled with him, but from that point forward had been wrestling for him as well. Jesus doesn't just start a work in your life and then let it free to run a natural course. Instead, Jesus starts a work. He's not just the author of that work, but we're told he's the finisher, that he's with us the whole time. You know, what's amazing to me is that both Jacob's redemption and the fact that God had shepherded him, he places these two glorious realities of God and how he interacts with us in the context of his journey with the Lord, right? This old man on his deathbed looking back over his life. That's the context. Always know, friend. 
While it's true that God wants to redeem you from the clutches of hell so that you can spend an eternity with him in heaven, that's great. The fundamental work of redemption and God's shepherding has a more specific application and implication for your life today. He looks back and he says, over my life, I'm so thankful that I served a God who shepherded me, who fed me, who loved me, who cared for me, and who was all the while redeeming me from the clutches of evil, from wickedness, from this fallenness, that God has been working. Yes, salvation provides you the golden ticket to heaven, but it does so much more than that. It provides you life and meaning today. Well, verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to place it on Manasseh's. And Joseph said to his father, not so, father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But Jacob refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He'll also be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of, nation, of nations. Well, Joseph here is just assuming that his blind father has made a mistake by blessing Ephraim, the younger, over Manasseh, the older. As we've pointed out, Jacob knew exactly what he was doing. This was not an accident. He guided his hands knowingly. The reality is that Jacob intentionally decides to give the blessing, not to the firstborn, but to Ephraim. So Jacob, verse 20, blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he said, Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and bow. Uh, this reference to taking this from the Amorite, sword and bow, we have no idea where this comes from. We have no idea when this happened. We have no details. Keep in mind, we're only given specific glimpses into the lives of these individuals. They're doing a lot of other things that aren't necessarily recorded in Scripture for us. And this seems to be one of those type of events. The statement, though, that Jacob makes to Joseph, it's rad. He gives this son a double portion. We're actually told it's, it's one portion above his brothers. What, what's happening is the birthright given to Joseph is now being given to his two sons, meaning that Joseph of the 12 is being given double because of his faithfulness, his service, his love for his family. Jacob is acknowledging this and he's rewarding it. Well, chapter 49, Jacob called his sons, the other sons, and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Following the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob calls the remaining 11 sons together for the specific purposes of providing some final exhortations before his death. And while these words in this chapter have prophetic implications, sadly, it's my position, I think this chapter gets taken out of context way too often. The key, from my estimation, to understanding these prophetic utterances concerning the future, the future descendants of each of Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes that would become of Israel, the key to understanding it is the context that Jacob provides before he even begins. Look back at the text. He says, gather together, sons. Come together. Why? That I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. That's the context. 
And this word last, it literally means hindermost, the final days. Now, though many scholars take Jacob's words and, he's, and they specifically apply them to what we know concerning each of the tribes recorded during the Old Testament histories. The reality is that I believe a more apt interpretation of the things that Jacob is going to say about his sons in this chapter find their ultimate fulfillment occurring, not in the Old Testament histories, but instead a future millennial reign of Jesus, of Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, at the end of the age. Because this is obviously still yet to occur. We don't see the fulfillment of these things. I believe it's, it's difficult to extrapolate a clear application from the literal meaning of what Jacob is communicating to each of his sons, because we don't know how these things still play out. And it's with that in mind, aside from the practical aspects and application of these words, we're going to avoid getting into the prophetic nuances. I think it's still yet to come, and as a result, it's hard to say with any type of definitive clarity. So we're just going to look at how these things apply in a general sense, and I think that'll be good enough. Jacob begins with Reuben. And you got the scene, the old man, his sons. Verse 3, Reuben. Reuben stands up. All right, here we go. Here's the blessing. You are my firstborn. That's right. I sure am. The might, the beginning of my strength. Yep, that's me. The excellency of dignity. The excellency of power. Oh, Dad, quit it. Unstable as water. You shall not excel. Ruh-roh, right? And why? Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. You went up on my couch. And that's all that's said about Reuben. <laughs> Reuben. He's the technical firstborn. And it's true that he possessed several natural leadership traits, but he had one serious character flaw that trumped it all. Based on the fact that Reuben had an affair with his father's handmaiden, Rachel's handmaiden, Bilhah, specifically while his father's grieving the loss of Rachel, Genesis 35. Jacob tells him, you've got some leadership traits, boy. Strength, power. But you're unstable. Because you're unstable, you won't excel. Sadly, Reuben ends up trading away the blessing of being the firstborn for a moment of passion and a moment of pleasure. And what's more interesting is that we have no indication in Scripture that Reuben has ever been called out for his sin. There's some, some nuances that he's been struggling with the guilt of what he's done. We've been given the insight because we read the story. But there's no indication that he's ever been called out that he knows that his father knows. His whole life, he's, think, he's thinking he's gotten away with something until the end. And here, Jacob calls him out. The application is clear, right? No sin is ever committed in secret. Well, verse 5, Jacob continues. He's moving down the list. Simeon and Levi are brothers. So these two men step out. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul entertain their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Following Reuben, Jacob next addresses these other sons. Reuben's brothers, Simeon and Levi. And in referencing their actions when they slew the residents of Shechem following the rape 
of their sister Dinah. If you recall the story, Jacob calls them instruments of cruelty because of their anger and their wrath. The fact that they slew an entire town, they would not receive a portion of the inheritance, instead being divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel. On a side note, this happens to be a great example of the importance of keeping these things, these prophecies, in the context of their last day's fulfillment. Though the tribe of Simeon would never possess an inheritance in the land, they would be scattered. The tribe of Levi, which would become the priestly tribe, they would possess an inheritance. Not a specific place, but instead cities of refuge scattered across Israel. This has been kind of a complication about this particular passage because Jacob, in referencing Levi, he has no mention of the fact that Levi becomes the priests. That there's a redemption to the tribe of Levi. Well, if you consider, though, the fact that there won't be a need for the Levitical priesthood during the millennial reign of Christ, and why is this? Why do we need priests when we have our high priest, Jesus, ruling and reigning in Jerusalem? No need for the Levites. Well, at that point, a more apt understanding of Jacob's prophecies for Levi and his descendants makes sense. Verse 8, Judah. Now, at this point, if you're Judah, you're sweating bullets, right? I mean, these are the final words of dear old dad. This is supposed to be great and fun and, and uplifting. And your brothers have just gotten hammered. Judah. Yeah, here I am. Yeah, dad. You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him, speaking of Shiloh, shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His, once again still speaking of Shiloh, his eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. I tend to think that that's a, a foreshadowing picture of Jesus, the conquering king. Now, if you look over the life of Judah, you can't help but notice, like his brothers, Judah doesn't have a good track record, does he? I mean, from all the things we know of Judah up until this, this moment, it's not good. Like, it was Judah, back in Genesis 37, who suggested the idea that instead of killing Joseph and not getting anything, it would be better for us to just sell him so we can make a profit. Like, he's the one that suggests they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelite traders. Additionally, Judah, he marries a Canaanite, which was wicked. Then he mistreats his daughter-in-law, Tamar. At one point, he knowingly sleeps with a prostitute. All these things recorded in Genesis 38. And yet, no mention of these things by his father. There's a bit of a redemption. You see, following those experiences, something changes in Judah. You know, we first noticed a change, right? as we've been working our way through the text, we noticed a change when, when Judah steps to the forefront and he's talking to his father, trying to convince his father to let Benjamin come to the land of, of Egypt. And unlike Reuben, who suggested, hey, you can trust me and, and if, if something happens, you can kill my kids. Judah takes a different approach, right? He says, if something happens to Benjamin, I will shoulder the blame. Like, like, you see some nobility. It's a change. And then this change seems to, to, to really manifest. When, when Joseph tells him, hey, you guys can go back. Benjamin, because he stole from me, he's going to become a slave. And Judah jumps to the forefront. He's like, no, 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 no. You've got to understand. This will kill dad. 
This will kill our father. Instead, take me. Like Judah's willing to sacrifice his life to preserve the life of his brother. Fascinating. It's amazing. Jacob, he sees this change. As a matter of fact, when they're finally coming into the land, it's, it's Judah who ends up being entrusted by his father to lead them to the land of Goshen. You see, Judah, because of his repentance, because of a change, because of grace, Jacob says that he would become the kingly tribe of Israel. And most notably, we see that this is fulfilled when a Judite, a young boy from the tribe of Judah, a scraggly little kid who had nothing but a sling, was a shepherd, a boy by the name of David, rises to the throne. Now, in saying this future destiny of Judah's descendants, Jacob sees through it all. And he sees the ultimate arrival There's some leadership in Judah. He's going to be the kingly tribe. And and, and, and the scepter won't leave until Shiloh. He sees through it all and he sees Shiloh. This word Shiloh, it, it literally means he whose right it is. There will be a king whose real right it is to rule over God's people. Of all of Jacob's sons, He's saying that this future Messiah, Shiloh, the weighted Savior of God's people, would come through the family lineage of Judah. Interesting. We have some genealogies in the New Testament that show that both Mary and Joseph's descendants come through the tribe of Judah. Jacob also says, To him shall be the obedience of the people, or more literally translated, To him shall be the gathering of the people. Once again, at the end of the tribulational period, as Jesus ushers us into a millennial reign, the Jewish people scattered across the world will be gathered there in Jerusalem as one. In Revelation 5, verse 5, Jesus is even referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Zebulun, verse 13, shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships. And his brother shall adjoin Sidon, Issachar. is a strong donkey. Lying down between two burdens, he saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backwards. And then Jacob says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Now, these prophecies, you can figure them out. Good luck. I don't know. But following this prophecy of Dan, Jacob makes, he he cries out. Something from his soul comes forth. This dramatic declaration. Look at it. It's, it's out of place. He gets done with Dan, and he just says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. It's nothing to do with Dan. In the original language, we have another first in Scripture. This word salvation, it's the first time we find it in the Bible. It's the word Yeshua. Now, now though Jacob, as he's nearing his death, appears to be calling out for God's salvation. I think something else is happening. You see, this Hebrew word, Yahshua, will later become a name that they use for their their boys, the name Joshua, Yahshua, which, when translated through Greek into Latin, is literally Jesus. See, I think Jacob... He isn't calling out for salvation. He's calling out for the one who saves. He's literally crying out, using his name, Jesus. Jesus. Yahshua. How powerful. Verse 19, Gad. A troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. 
Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bow. A fruitful bow by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. And by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings from heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lies beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your fathers have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separated from his brothers, Benjamin. The final is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey and at night he shall divide the spoils. In this beautiful blessing of Joseph, Jacob, he says that Joseph is fruitful. He says he's fruitful. Don't we want to be fruitful? But he explains how. He, he continues that while the archers have bitterly grieved him and shot at him, hated him, his bow remained in strength. That's why he was fruitful. He was able to endure. But note, he was able to endure not through his own strength, or ability, or tenacity, but because the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. You see, Joseph's life yielded fruit. Yes, because he could endure the trial, but he could endure the trial because he had been strengthened by the Lord. He found his strength in the Lord. You look at the story of Joseph, and this is how Jacob recounts it. How was this man able to endure the way that he did when so many things seemed to be in his way? And as soon as he seems to be getting a good stride, another obstacle, and he'd fall. But he'd rise to his feet and keep going. That he ran with endurance and perseverance. How was he able to do this? Well, Jacob's critique, his analysis, is that while arrows and bows and things were coming at him from every direction. He endured because of the strength of the Lord. I don't know what you're facing, friend. But I do know this, you can't endure it alone. But you don't have to. That you also have access to the strength of the Lord. It's amazing to me that in this blessing, Jacob uses five distinct titles for God. The might the mighty God of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your father, the almighty. It's clear by the end of his life, the God of Abraham and Isaac has become the God of Jacob. You see here that this man had come to know God personally for himself. Well, verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said, I am to be gathered to my people, buried with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, and the cave that is in Machpelah, which is before Merimi in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. They buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. There I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is there, were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Though Jacob has already made Joseph promise to take his body back to Canaan to be buried in the cave of Machpelah along with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and his wife Leah, which there's a link at the end of the page. That's significant and special. Go back, Genesis 29, verses 1 through 35. Why Jacob ends up deciding to be buried with Leah. It's, it's, it's amazing. But he repeats all the wishes that he had originally given to Joseph, to the rest of the sons. And then we're told that he breathed his last. Or literally, he let go of 
or gave up the ghost. At the ripe old age of 147, Jacob has finished the race. And yet, do not mistake his physical passing as death. Oh no. While Jacob's body may have died, Jacob, friend, according to this text, remained very much alive. We're told specifically he, like those who had gone before him, was gathered. Speaks of him still in a present tense. He was gathered with his people. Further evidence of the afterlife. Now, in closing, I want to go back to the New Testament commentary on Jacob's life. You see, of everything this man did, the one thing memorialized by the Spirit of God for all time was his adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh into his family and then their blessings. Hebrews 11, 21, I'll read it again. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now, what makes this interesting is that up until this moment, think about it. What has been totally forbidden concerning the descendants of Abraham? What was it? The thing they weren't to do. They weren't supposed to marry outside of the family, right? That was it. And yet, not only has Joseph taken a Gentile bride, which was taboo, but then he conceives children by her. You see, Jacob in this moment, allowing such a thing to occur, but beyond that, blessing it would have not happened apart from Genesis chapter 48. You see, in seeking to understand why Jacob would do such a thing, why he would okay Joseph marrying an Egyptian, having children, blessing, but then making those children his firstborn, giving them the blessing, the blessing of the firstborn. It's radical. He's not like, hey, it's okay, trying circumstances. He's putting a stamp of approval, and he does this for one reason. It's by faith, because it goes against everything he knew. This is an act of faith. Now, that's fascinating, right? And it's kind of a head-scratcher, honestly. And it's been something that I've chewed on because it's faith in the context of Hebrews 11. Faith in what? By Abraham, faith. Isaac, faith. It goes through faith. Faith in what? Faith and a promised Savior. These are Old Testament saints making decisions, acting in faith in Jesus, though they can't see him, although maybe Jacob could. You see, this is the context. And I think, let me paint a picture for you. You're Jacob. Say you're there. You see this old man. Joseph has come. He's brought his boys. And you're leaning on your staff. You're old. You're dying. All the energy, all of your strength, he's leaning there. And he's worshiping God. He's thinking back over his life. There's a lot going on, right? Lots of things are stirring. He's looking beyond Egypt. He's looking back to the land of Canaan. He's thinking about God's promises. How God had shepherded him and redeemed him, been faithful. And I think it's in this moment that Jacob, this blind old man looking beyond the physical into the spiritual realm, I think he sees through Joseph and he understands that Joseph is different. That Joseph was a picture that there was a Savior that was coming, and that Joseph was a glimpse of it. I think Jacob is seeing this. He's leaning on his staff, and he's seeing through Joseph to Jesus, that Joseph is a shadow of a more excellent Savior coming. He cries out, names him, just a few moments later. And he sees that this coming Savior that Joseph was a picture of, that Joseph was a type of, the ultimate Savior, the ultimate Redeemer, would be rejected and would take a Gentile bride. And it would be those children of the Gentile bride that Jesus took, the church, that would be the firstborn. 
and that should receive the blessing. You see, Jacob knew his sons had a heritage, but he's recognizing that Ephraim and Manasseh, they represented something different. I think he sees the Gentiles receiving a savior, being born through a savior. He sees you and I. That's who he sees. And Paul talks about this in Romans. He says there's a mystery. Those born out of time receive the firstborn. And why do we have the firstborn? Why do we have the blessing of the firstborn? For one reason, Ephraim and Manasseh, why are they given the firstborn? Did they do anything? Anything recorded? Not at all. They did nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. The only reason they're given it is they existed through Joseph. And why do we exist? We didn't come with a spiritual heritage. We came from the world, broken, lost, in darkness. And yet, we've been called to be the firstborn because of grace demonstrated because we're found in Jesus as Ephraim and Manasseh were found just simply by being the kids of his father. And Jacob worshiped. I think it's powerful. What a moment that he sees. And then when he take into account that he cries out, I am waiting for you, Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, my salvation. You didn't know you were in Genesis, but there you are. There's a lot of other theology that I think substantiates that particular theory. Things I don't want to bore you with. You can go to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21, to see the, 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 the new Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, there are 12 gates. 12 foundations. The foundations have the name of the apostles. The 12 gates have the names of the 12 tribes. You know who's missing? Ephraim and Manasseh. Not just there, but also in Ezekiel chapter 48, seeing the same thing over and over and over again. They're given land, they're given inheritance, but they're not lumped in as being part of the tribes. Why? Because we've been grafted in. I think it's, it's a cool thing. Chew on it. Study it on your own. Father, Lord.